0: Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure.
1: As always, we want to give a special shout out to our season two sponsor, Accurix. That's A-C-C-U-R-I-C-S. Accurix is a infrastructure as code security company, which helps codify security for your cloud native infrastructure by codifying security throughout the development lifecycle. They also manage the popular open source IAC project, Terascan. Visit them at accurix.com for more.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. And today we're joined by Jacqueline Snyder. Jackie, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Definitely. So you have a a really unique and interesting background. Uh, So for folks that haven't heard you on any outlet or medium of some sort, would you mind telling us a bit about your background and what you're up to these days?
2: Yeah. So my full-time job is I'm a Hoover Fellow at Stanford University. and That's kind of a A newish type of fellowship, which is a long term fellowship for what we would consider junior scholars. So it's folks that are, you know, within. Six to eight years of their PhD. So at Hoover, I work on issues that have to do with emerging technology and national security. My background is a social scientist. I have a PhD in political science, so I do a lot of work using experiments and war games and content analysis. And um, kind of at its core, I'm interested in how people interact with technology. And then um, on more of kind of the pragmatic side, I've spent, I'm a reservist. I have 16 and a half, that half feels important, 16 and a half years of experience with the Air Force. And using that vantage point, I've worked a lot on cybersecurity policy, worked for Cyber Command for six years, and then was able to serve as a senior policy advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Yeah, that's
1: awesome. It's it's so cool to to talk to another academic who's got all of this great technical uh, and industry experience too. So being a Hoover fellow, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about that journey, sort of getting to the sort of the fellow point and then how cybersecurity really sort of plays into that fellowship.
2: Yeah, so I did I did six years as an Air Force intelligence officer. And the last few years we're really dealing with very technical intelligence and for those of you who are in this community you know that there is a really big bleed over between things that we used to call signals intelligence and what we now call cyber security and so i left the active duty and started a phd program and was really interested in how what i had learned in those last few years in the air force what that meant for international relations and security and deterrence and whether states went to war with each other. And I kept coming back, and this was a while ago. I was about between 2011, 2013. I kept coming back to this idea that that this thing called cyber, which at the time we were still allowed to call it cyber, not cybersecurity or cyberspace or cyber ops. We could just say cyber. That this like weird thing called cyber really mattered for how states interacted, but it was puzzled by how. And then I started working in strategy and plans for Cyber Command, thinking about cyber and deterrence. So I finished my PhD and I went to go work at the Naval War College as an assistant professor and continued to work there on cyber and deterrence issues and crisis stability. And I worked, I designed uh, quite a few private sector war games where we were um, looking at leaders in the critical infrastructure sectors and then having them play with our government representatives from DOD and CISA uh, to understand the dynamics about public private partnerships and how that affected escalation and stability. And then I got the opportunity to come work for the woman who's now the director of Hoover, the institution, Condoleezza Rice. And uh, this is a really great job. Stanford is an amazing institution. Hoover um, gives extraordinary support and freedom to its scholars to do really innovative research. And so I've been here about three years, really expanding, getting the opportunity to expand on all this work on cyber and stability.
0: That's really incredible. It's definitely a a wide breadth of experience you have, too. And I know one thing you mentioned was the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, you know, being a senior policy advisor. Can you speak about that experience? And for those that aren't familiar with the commission, you know, what that was and what the government was trying to do? I know, for example, the government actually acted on many of the recommendations that came out of that in the NDAA, for example. So I think uh, that'd be really interesting to hear about.
2: Yeah, I was really lucky to be able to be brought in. And for those of you who don't know how these big commissions work, I'll just break it down a little bit. So the Cyberspace Slam Commission was the brainchild of a bipartisan group of senators and congressmen. Really, you know, Mike Gallagher, Agnes King, and Jim Langevin, and a few others. And they said, We have this real problem with cyber. We need to treat this as we would for 9/11. And instead of waiting for something to happen, let's start a commission now so we can start creating legislative priorities. And so that's really what it was. So they assembled a team. The executive director was Mark Montgomery. and um, they they went into different task forces. So I was on the task force that was looking on the Department of Defense. And they brought in um, a woman named Erica Borgard, who's a professor at the at West Point to lead that task force. And she, was, she brought me on just to do really kind of really literally advisory work. So I worked on escalation, uh, norms, talent, and then all these various kind of subjects all came together in the final report, which led to a series of legislative agenda items and led eventually to the the creation of the National Cyber Director, led by Chris Inglis, as well as a series of recommendations about cybersecurity talent, uh, the use of the reserves for cybersecurity in the Department of Defense, as well as more authorities and funding for a series of organizations. So it's been actually an extraordinarily effective commission when you look at their ability to actually take ideas and there was a lot of ideas and then translate that into legislation. And that I I give a lot of kudos to Mark Montgomery because he was hurting some of the academic cats, (laughs) some of us who were having kind of arcane fights and turning that into, okay, so where does that go in terms of a policy? How does that get implemented? And I think that's what makes this commission different than maybe some others that had wonderful ideas, but then weren't able to turn that into some sort of legislative change.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great call out. It's like uh one is the breadth of, you know, recommendations that were made, you know, across all the different agencies and departments and such. Uh, and and then not only that, but they got turned into actionable things that actually got materialized in many cases. I think I just saw that the commission, you know, its authorization I guess came to an end or whatnot, but it it is now becoming a nonprofit or something like that. Is that correct?
2: Yes. And I think Mark Montgomery is leading that. So I think you'll see Uh, a continued movement. I think you'll find that this commission continues to influence cyber policy in the United States for a long time to the future.
1: It's so cool to hear about, you know, sort of this blend between academia, the private sector, the public sector, like collaborating, especially on uh, research and these, you know, war games, like all kinds of different things within cyber but we sort of see this in the industry where it's like some people don't play well together or, you know, you're trying to collaborate. And so I'm curious if you think that sort of we're doing enough to blend academic industry and public sector pursuits specifically within cybersecurity.
2: Yeah. And I think you really hit on something that's Been a theme for those of us who are working in this community. If we had like a a bingo sheet, the middle would always be public-private partnership because it was such a buzzword. But so little got done at first, and it was almost like we were all speaking past each other. I, I I think that does still happen to some point. But I think we're seeing forward progress, right? You see that the that CISA is building up the ISACs, that CISA and Cyber Command are more proactive in communicating with the public and communicating with the sectors when they see threats. You have relationships that have been built between critical infrastructure sectors that really didn't exist before. And then on the academic side, I think there's a real recognition in the federal government and in the Department of Defense, that academia is part of building the talent pipeline. And so it's a really important partner. So I know Cyber Command has just stood up a new academic outreach program. And I know that, you know, different academic organizations work with a program that the NSA runs called Cyber Centers or Ac- Academic Excellence. So I think we're seeing forward motion. Could there always be better partnerships? Absolutely. But I would say I'm optimistic that we're speaking past each other less than we were in the past.
1: Yeah, I no, I totally agree. I think especially like uh, seeing what CISA has done and some of the other organizations you mentioned are really uh, working towards this. And I, I agree. So I was curious as sort of a follow on, do you feel like that sort of the human factors, psychology, the ability to communicate and you know, sort of work well together, do you think that that's another critical component of that sort of increased partnership?
2: Yeah, I think we have to recognize that we all come to, we have similar desires, but actually they might conflict sometimes. One of the the big findings that we had in the game where we brought d- 14 different critical infrastructure sectors in to run a war game was that Some of these companies were multinational companies. And so incentives that the U.S. government had about regulation or even about pushing patches, uh, it really didn't work for those companies. And we weren't thinking and understanding what the bottom line and the challenges were for the public sector. So I, I think there's... There are kind of relationships um, that need to be built, and understanding what each other's limitations and comparative advantages are is all about how we end up creating the right relationships.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I I love the, uh, the emphasis on relationships and communication. I think it's something that's not talked about enough in cybersecurity, honestly. So another thing I want to ask is, you recently spoke on a, about cy- why cyber deterrence wasn't enough or wasn't the right approach, I should say, for national security. Can you elaborate on that and what direction you think we should take instead?
2: Yeah, you know, deterrence has been the central focal point for the vast majority of U.S. cyber strategy over the last decade. Um, It was one of the main pillars under the Obama administration. It came up heavily in the Cyberspace Solarium Commission report, and it plays a bit of a role in the 2018 Department of Defense cyber strategy and a much larger role, actually, in the national cybersecurity strategy. So I think we've had kind of desire to deter stuff in cyber, but deterrence is hard. Deterrence is not about, it's about changing behaviors, not about changing effects. So in order for deterrence to succeed, you have to convince somebody to not do something that they would want to do. And that's complicated. And cyberspace I think we can use more active verbs, degrade, um, you know, is a better verb, for example, than deter. But I also think just moving away from, hey, we have to stop every incident and instead moving towards resiliency as an alternative where we don't have to stop every incident. We don't have to deter every incident. We're not failing if incidents are still occurring. But instead, our success is based on our ability to withstand significant events, our ability to to take the attacks and continue. And I think that the more resilient we are, it actually has this byproduct where it makes these attacks less likely to succeed and therefore, in some odd way, deterrence becomes more successful as well.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like uh, in, in cyber security, you know, more on like a, not the national level, but the practitioner aspect is like prevention is ideal, of course, right? Deterrence would be great, and that's what we're striving for, but we need to recognize that it's not always going to be successful. So we need to have uh, alternative, you know, methods in place too.
2: Yeah, I think that part of the focus on deterrence has been the unique. Geographic and political circumstance that the United States finds itself in, where it has a history of not having territorial invasions. So deterrence is seems like a, a relatively simple concept for us, but the reality is probably a lot more like a country that's under siege all the time. And so it takes a really large cognitive shift for US policymakers to move from the physical world now to the cyber world where all these physical analogies really just aren't as effective.
1: You know, it's it's funny because this is absolutely, I feel like where my research has gone in cybersecurity is sort of, you know, it's important to understand different types of attacks, what's going on, protecting systems. But I've seen this real need to understand the terminology that we're using to, to focus on how we're saying things. And not just that, but you know what the definition is of how how do we actually define these terms that we're all using together and so I was curious how you felt about that you know you brought up this brought up this you know this need for deterrence or maybe changing the terminology we're using how do you feel like maybe that plays into cybersecurity in a larger picture
2: yeah terminology has been really interesting in this I'll say domain which is a terminology that is fraught so One of the big things I've noticed is I come from a national security background. I've worked with um, the Department of Defense on generating its official jargon, (laughs) its official lexicon for how it defines things in cyberspace. And I've studied how the definition of these words matters for domestic law and international law. So I, for example, am very, very reticent to say things like cyber attack. Vast majority of what's occurring right now in the international legal and even the United States kind of domestic world would not count as a cyber attack. But then on Twitter, I have a very large overlap with the kind of more practitioner InfoSec community. And when I say, well, that's not a cyber attack, they get frustrated. I'm dealing with this all the time. This is attack. This matters, right? And there's this almost like weaponization of vocabulary coming from the InfoSec community. And we're speaking past each other, but I think what's happening is the InfoSec community wants to be able to convey how important and existential, in fact, these attacks or these incidents are. And the national security community is like, yeah, 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 no, we can't say that like that's that changes the legal implications of what we can do of what our adversary can do and so there's this like speaking past each other i think both the national security community and the infosec community both think that cyber attacks matter but the way in which we articulate that i think is different
0: I want to ask you one thing real quick because it made me think of something while you were speaking is like the term cyber attack. And, and it is a different, you know, shift in terms of how we think about an attack compared to the traditional like physical context, especially when you're talking about nation states and such. Like, you know, how do we go about recognizing what is or isn't an attack, especially when attribution can be difficult? And, you know, it's very diff- difficult in the digital domain, right? To, to attribute certain things to a certain country. And it can be, you know, tricky, but, uh, you know, it, we also need to recognize that it can be very devastating still too.
2: Yeah. And attribution is in itself a political phenomenon. It's not just technological. So there's the, Hey, can I attribute this via the technical characteristics to an actor? And then there's the political of as a nation state, do I want to make public attribution? How certain am I of this? If I make public attribution, what are the repercussions to me politically, either in the domestic sphere or the international sphere? So it's interesting because attribution. People often think it's just a technical problem, but really it's also a political problem as well.
1: No, I th- I I just I'm so fascinated by by this topic specifically because I think there's still so much research to be done and even just awareness uh, that that this is possibly adding to some of the the challenges that we have in security, right? Is it's like if we can't speak the same language to each other or we're trying to and we're still talking about different things, how are we able to To communicate effectively.
2: Yeah. Or Um, if Microsoft puts out an attribution and the administration's like, oh man, could you, could you have waited? Like we wanted to build a plan. We wanted to come up with how we were going to deal with that attribution. And then you have private sector actors that are acting out of concern about the domain, but maybe don't have the same political awareness. And then, you know, you, you're kind of forcing different regimes into policy traces.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love this topic. It's it's got the th- so many layers. But so I wanted to sort of in that same vein, given your background, you know, in the in the, with the Air Force and within the military, do you think that there are any sort of lessons learned from that experience, or something that we can sort of consider and take away when we're thinking about protecting our systems?
2: Yeah. So I would say. I'd like to say that my experience working as in the active duty and now as a reservist helps me with cybersecurity. But I don't, I'm not sure that's true. My experience with the Department of Defense over the last 10 years, being a reservist, is that they're very far behind. They're far behind in terms of baseline information technology practices, but also really far behind when it comes to cybersecurity. They have not figured out how to acquire commercial cybersecurity defense technology, definitely not at the, the speed and pace as most private sector. And I think what I've realized is that the Air Force is kind of going in two directions, the DoD in general. On one hand, you're all in on artificial intelligence and and digitally dependent technologies. And on the other hand, they're not able to to keep up with what that means for cyber vulnerabilities. And so quite often the two are speaking, they're not in the same world. They're almost stovepiped, where you have on one hand people investing in software and investing in digital technologies. And on the other hand, the Air Force and the DoD are not necessarily thinking about what the implications are for cyber vulnerabilities. Or they are, but they're not, you know, doing it as a, a pair, which I think the private sector has a much better understanding of the relationship between advances in digital technology and cybersecurity.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right there. It'd be hard to argue against that. So one thing I wanted to ask you as well is we know you have an extensive background as like a cybersecurity research, researcher, advisor, you know, around policy and such. And I, want, I was curious, how do you go about ensuring you keep a pulse on like the practitioner aspect of cybersecurity in addition to like the research and academic aspect? And I think you touched on this earlier with like uh, Twitter, for example. Uh, so I'm curious, like, how do you go about tra- uh, keeping a pulse on the uh, practitioner aspect to complement your your academic and policy advising that you do? So
2: I, this is actually a real challenge for me because my natural Venn diagram does not actually put me in contact with true technologists that often. You know, I'm in the academic sphere, I'm in the national security sphere, and um, so uh, I'll let you gonna you know, reveal a few little secrets. One, my dad is a technologist. He was the he worked on uh, cloud development uh, for J.P. Morgan Chase. He recently got cancer. And so he stopped doing that. But I, (laughs) I still do call my dad and say, Dad, I have these ideas about how technology impacts security. Can you make sure I got the technology part right? I'm a little worried. And then I read heavily as much as I can about what's going on in technology via um, blogs, newsletters, and then occasionally, you know, just buying the books and seeing what are people in industry reading. And then in general, I find that surrounding myself with people who are very proficient who are practitioners. And then when I get to a point in my research where I think, I don't know if this assumption is correct, I always make sure that I'm talking to the folks that are out there who are actually working on cybersecurity on the technical side to make sure that I'm not making, I'm not speaking past that or that I'm making the wrong assumptions. But it definitely is a challenge to be able to make sure you get enough of the technology right to understand how people are interacting with it. Cause You don't have to be, you know, necessarily a coder, but you need to understand how the characteristics of coding affect the way the people interact with cyberspace.
1: I think that's a really good point because I think sometimes there's this, this like thought in the industry that like, if you're just in academia, like how, or you're just doing research, like how could you understand? And I, I think that's sort of, I think it's almost not fair because we know lots of people, even if it's just research-based or, or whatever, there's still a lot of technology people that I'm sure we, you know, interact with all the time. And, I know it's funny you say you call your dad, like both my brothers are in IT. So like anytime I have a question, if I'm not doing it personally, I'm like, hey, what do you guys think? So I just think that's funny. But yeah, so you sort of touched on it a little bit before I get to the last question, but to allow you to, you know, sort of expand on this idea of uh, what does cyber resiliency mean to you?
2: Yeah. And I'm not a technologist, right? So I'm going to tell you what cyber resiliency means to me as somebody who studies how people and organizations and governments interact. So for me, there is a technological component, of course, right? You know, there seems to be core characteristics of technologies and especially digital technologies that make them more resilient, less centralized networks. That's something that network theory and network science says creates more resilient networks in general. That's actually not a trend that we're seeing in a lot of Department of Defense investments in digital architecture. So that's a big difference, right? Like, So less centralized systems. Systems that have backups or that in some cases, when data is extremely important, finding ways to have either analog or paper backups of the data. These are all expensive options. And then I think a large part of resiliency is human behaviors. How do we adapt when we don't have access to certain information? How do we adapt when we don't have access to certain networks or databases? And That's about building training. That's about building capability to function outside of the digital, which once again is something that I think in general is hard to convince people to invest in because it means that you are spending more money and taking more time away from being more efficient in the digital world. But I think sometimes you have to sacrifice some level of efficiency for resiliency.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you, we, we've we sort of talked about this before too, where we talk about this like people process technology and that, you know, you can have the technology, you can have the process, but you still need to make sure that your people are aligned with that and you're helping them to, to sort of uh, align with all of those goals. So with that, thank you so much, Jackie, for, for being on with us today. You hit so many great topics. Thanks for being here and uh, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for having me.